Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Grillin' JR with the voice of wrestling, Mr. Jim Ross. JR, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm doing good, man. I am having a Moscow Mule full transparency here, and I've uh, gone to my, it's not my new favorite, but it's, it's in the top of the batting order. Uh, it's it's uh, Grey Goose Pear Vodka made into a mule with the uh, ginger beer. It's going to be real ginger beer, not ginger ale or some ginger flavor. Real ginger beer is a big difference maker. Some lime juice and some fresh lime and you're done. So I, I had, I, I made a pear mule before we started the broadcast today. I haven't drank it yet. So I'm still somewhat coherent, but that's just no, me normally, Conrad. I'm a little irrelevant. So here we go. Well, I don't know about irrelevant. Uh, you were certainly <laughs> relevant this past weekend. And I feel like knowing that, uh, JR is going to be hitting sauce today is going to be one of our best shows yet. But I got to tell you, we got tremendous feedback from last week's show. I, I had a lot of people even tweet me saying it was the best podcast and most insightful podcast I've ever been a part of because we really got to dig deep on the big surprise of you being drafted from raw over to SmackDown and why Vince McMahon didn't tell you and your reaction to it. And just sort of a, a deep dive into the psyche of Vince McMahon. What was the feedback you got from our draft 2008 episode? I think people appreciate my honesty or what they perceive to be my honesty. Uh, I'm not going to lie to anybody on the show. I may forget things, but you know, give me a break here. We're, uh, we're trying, uh, but I, I'm going to be honest at, at every turn in the road. So I think people are, are happy that I'm being honest. I'm not gutting and quartering, uh, WWE or anybody else. That's not my goal either. You get enough of that shit on Twitter and social media, most negative toxic environment. It continues to evolve and its toxicity uh, is the damn, uh, is social media dangerous shit, man. So, uh, but anyway, I, 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 people like the show. They also like the fact that we talked about some current events at the top of the program before we ventured into our, our journey, uh, like today's 1990 great American bash. All right. Great American bash 1990. Of course, we're dropping our show today on independence day, the 4th of July. This one went down nearly 30 years ago, July 7th from the Baltimore arena. Of course, right there in Baltimore, Maryland, it's going to have about 8,900 fans. And, uh, those fans are going to pay roughly $150,000 at the gate. Baltimore was a mainstay for the NWA and then later WCW. So many big bashes, 88, 89, 90, 91, 91 was such a stinker. You took a break, but you came back 96, 98, 99, 2000. Baltimore, man, it just goes, uh, goes together with the NWA. Does it not? Yeah. Yeah. It was a great market. You know, I enjoyed that, uh, playing that market. There was a lot of, there were people say, well, why was Baltimore kind of a, uh, focal point of the NWA as far as uh, live events, pay-per-view sites, etc." Well, Baltimore was certainly a major quote unquote, major market. Uh, it certainly was then, and it certainly is now, uh, and they got the, all those Sooners in the Baltimore Ravens football team that I'm going to look forward to following this year to some degree for sure. Uh, but it was also kind of considered half-assed WWF territory because over the years, uh, the, the WWF had had big events in Baltimore, a success house shows, epic moments. Uh, Baltimore was where Bruno uh, dropped the title to superstar Billy Graham. 
And that had a lot of historical value to it because it was far away from uh, New York City, about as far south of New York City as the WWF office ran at that time. So Baltimore had a lot of historical value. Uh, and the reason I think that it was so successful is because promoter Gary Jester lived there. He had all kinds of media contacts. There's never a shortage of local media for our shows. Thanks to Gary's contacts. Uh, he, he promoted the market old school wise using, you know, shoe leather, pressing the flesh and old school promoting. It was an old school feel, smaller market feel in a, in a, in a, in a, in a arena that quite frankly, we, we should have been selling out all the time. It wasn't like it was, you know, 20,000 seats, less than 10,000 seats fill that up, I believe. So, uh, that was the deal, but Baltimore was, had a lot of, had a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of things. It's also Baltimore is also, uh, the, uh, site of, uh, a, a late night after party at Sabatino's restaurant in little Italy where Kevin Sullivan went to the bathroom, <laughs> took all his clothes off and put uh, a row, his robe on. And then he lit a birthday can. I think it was Gary Jester's ex-wife. I stress ex-wife birthday that night. I believe it was. And he got a candle off her cake, a lit candle. And he put it in his foreskin. So he came out like he was, he had a sparkler attached to his penis and that was in a restaurant. I feel like we yeah. should mention if, if blue chew existed back then, the fucking oh. building would have burned down. God. Oh man. Yeah. It, it, but that I'll never forget that. And the, the look on the faces of these ladies that were there who weren't in on the, you no, know, nobody knew what Kevin Sullivan was going to do, but you know, he was he was kind of half-assed in competition with the Nate. So it was, uh, Nate and all his minions. And we were all there and having a blast at Sabatino's restaurant in the little Italy part of uh, Baltimore. Good. We had a good time. Now when I go to Baltimore, I go to, uh, uh, Jimmy seafood. Yeah. Jimmy's famous is the new Sabatino's. It's the Ribera of America. If it you're is. in Baltimore, you got to check out Jimmy's. Let's it, talk about what we did before this pay-per-view. We're coming off capital combat. That's right. The fucking RoboCop show it went down in May. Uh, we just covered that one a few weeks ago. This is before the days where there's a pay-per-view every month. In fact, in 1990, there's only five. Do you prefer the monthly pay-per-view or would you prefer a, a longer stretch, whether it's four or five shows a year? You got to give up something to do one a month. You either got to, you got to either, uh, compromise your live touring schedule to where only the key dates and key tours are, uh, are booked. If you're going to go once a month on the pay-per-views, I like less pay-per-views a year because then if the creative is on top of their game, they've got a long-term plan. They book, they have booked the top two or three matches on all the pay-per-views for the next year type situation. You have an amazing opportunity to build tremendous creative because you've written your novel. You know how it ends. So start at the ending and work backwards and create the journey. And so I think that when you have a fewer pay-per-views a year, <clears throat> pardon me, that, uh, uh, you have a better opportunity to make them really good products. And along the way you have focused 
and directional television that keeps your audience in, interested on a week by week basis. It's to me, it's a no brainer. So let's keep it moving here. I do want to talk about the news and notes heading into this show. Um, I, I want to say at the top of this though, this is one of my favorite NWA, NWA shows ever. Uh, this was one of the first times that you guys really promoted the Turner home classics in a wide scale and sting being on the cover with the face paint uh, was probably a big part of that. It stings coming out party. There were lots of little stingers and the video <laughs> rental market was, um, the, the video market was a lot different back then. And, and it yeah. was big money for you guys. You guys weren't selling tapes for, you know, 1995 or whatever it would be 10 years from now in this era, you're selling tapes for a lot of money and, and video stores are renting them out for three bucks or five bucks or whatever they were. It was a cash cow for you guys. Yeah, they were doing good to turn home, turn home entertainment uh, did well. They were, they were one of our allies in that, uh, you know, we were kind of on the South tower, the redheaded stepchild tower. I think we're on the South tower. Uh, you know, we all, we were looked at, we were the circus people that just moved in off the, off the tour. Uh, that's one of Ted's. So one of Ted's vanity projects, the wrestlers are here. Uh, so, but they didn't look that the, the goddamn wrestling got bigger ratings than, uh, their shows that they were on, which primarily were the CNN news people that would look down their noses at uh, the wrestling people and, uh, their fans, which really pisses you off because you got a right to say, Hey, I don't like wrestling. Okay, cool. They don't like it. But then when you go a step farther and start uh, denigrating all the fans that do like it, that's bullshit. That's weak. It's really weak. And it's also makes somebody insecure. It's like the old deal about driving around a, a, a single guy driving around in a stretch limo has, uh, has some issues. Let's uh, talk about what's happening sort of behind the scenes. Ole Anderson becomes the booker at the beginning of June. Uh, what are your memories about Ole coming in, taking the book? How was it received? And, uh, what was your relationship like with Ole at this point? Mm. I gotta tell you, Ole Anderson had great product knowledge. He knew what he was. He knew the basic fundamentals of utilizing human nature to book wrestling matches. Ole was especially good because he was one in real life, good at developing villains, bad guys, heels, antagonists, whatever you want to call them. He was real good at that era and that area. Uh, he did not have great people skills and he did not communicate well with a lot of people. I remember one night he, he was pissed off about something and we had, he was supposed to write the Sunday night show. This is on Friday, I think. We're going to record it that Sunday. And he, Shivani and I are still there working, uh, putting finish, fin finishing touches on the show he just wrote and turn, turned in. But you know, he was he was pissed off. So the Saturday night show was just names and stuff. So we had to finish that. He said, "You guys better write that Sunday show. Or if not, they're not going to be one because I'm out of here." So he he was pissed off about something. And so we Tony and I wrote a show. It was you know it was what it was and. But we had a show. We committed. We fulfilled our commitments. He was challenging to work with Conrad. He was a old school tough guy, you know. Uh, played football at Colorado. Known to be a pretty, you know, uh, pretty uh, stiff at times. Uh, you know, tough guy. Uh, so he he had that 
that mentality that, you know, change is not good. And so, and that's a dangerous thing for all of us to get in where we fear change or we resist change. And I, I, I've, one of the things that's been made my life easier is not resisting change. You know, if it's the right thing to do, then go with it. Do you have, stand- nobody ever tells a funny only story. Do any exist? Uh, I don't know. You know, I used to bullshit him about his band lawn shirts. And I, I think I used to tell him, what do you wear? A double medium nowadays. And, uh, he always thought that was kind of funny in a wise ass way. Uh, he had, oh, look, that place is crazy there, man. That WCW offices at that time were, you know, it was really insane. That's where that would have been one of the great television shows of all time. And you wouldn't have to show one frame of wrestling. It was all about the backstage, all about the office. You got a brand new entity that's, that's being created from scratch, a division of Turner with on a legitimate 12th floor, you know, set of offices producing their, one of their top three highest rated television shows week in and week out. Uh, it's just, uh, it was amazing time. The, the shit that was going on there, man, boy, I had, a, I had a lot of fun there. <laughs> I, I am lucky to be, really, I'm lucky to be alive because there ain't nothing. I didn't try probably twice. And, uh, I just cowboy told me, watch something. He said, man, you're going to love going to Atlanta. It's a, it's a, it's Sodom and Gomorrah. It's the New York city of the South. Every rich old Southern guy's beautiful daughter goes to Atlanta to make her, make her mark or whatever. Hell, he had me, he had me recruited. I was going to join the chamber of commerce. So it was a, it was great. It was great. He was right in many of those areas. He was exactly right. So it was, uh, it was fun, but you gotta, you gotta live where you are and, and, and then you move on you get married, you settle down and you stop living that way. So, but you gotta live where you are. Well, when only takes over, he brings in a lot of the big names from the early to mid eighties guys like Paul Orndorff, the iron Sheik, buddy Landell, Stan Hansen, Bob Orton. You know, do you remember what your feelings were at that time when you see Hey, here's some of the, uh, you know, guys who were big stars five or 10 years ago, how were they received by the rest of the locker room? Did they fit in any, any comments on that? Well, it was obvious that we were not getting any younger, uh, which was what we had been told to do. It's funny how many promotions I've been with in my career where getting younger was a priority or getting younger. Like AEW right now is the priority because it's young. Uh, and fresh and unpredictable, but every promoter wants to get young. You, everybody wants a new act. Everybody's got to have something new to advertise to their constituency. New is important to wrestling fans. We've talked about that here. So, uh, uh, it was all good guys, Conrad, and they all had the, at one time had great runs and found great success. But because of physical uh, uh, issues and, and things, uh, you know, drug and alcohol issues and getting off track, all that unnecessary bullshit that the guys usually blame on the business because they normally don't have the balls to look in the mirror and see who's at fault with their drug and alcohol abuse and their broken homes. So, uh, 
but they're, they're just, I, I think it maybe I could only look at it this way. Maybe there are good stopgap measures for where we were at that point in time. All those guys had name identity. And in some markets on the preliminary matches underneath, there'd be names that the average fan would recognize. So for that reason, and being in that role, it was okay, but it was not something that you want to build on or, or, or to try to create main event opportunities for that cluster or that group of talent. Let's, uh, let's talk about something Meltzer reported. He says Cactus Jack Manson finished up on Sunday night in sunrise, Florida. Ole Anderson was going to job him out. So he decided it would be best to quit. It appears both Brian Pillman and Tom Zink are going to be phased down and out respectively. Uh, of course, we know that's not exactly going to be the case with Pillman, but there is a little bit of a backstory that we'll talk about. Tom Zink is going to be, uh, in the unfortunate position on this card we're discussing today of taking on a debuting Vader. That was, uh, that's a tough ask when you find out that cactus Jack is going to be leaving. Do you have a conversation with him? What's your relationship like with cactus when he's leaving here? That's good. Uh, good. Honest. Always been honest. Here's the thing, uh, having a chemistry or a relationship with the booker has always been a key component to the success or failure of any wrestler's career. You want to name very, very few. And I can't think of one off my head at all. Not one that didn't have a rapport with the booker. That wasn't, you know, that, that, that found success. So in other words, I don't know anybody that's successful that didn't have a relationship to some degree, the booker's writing your stories, man. He's putting you in these roles. You're, you're, you're being cast as a, a villain uh, or a hero, or maybe you're one of the guys that are your casualty. Just scroll around. Who knows you're being cast into a role. And so that booker is doing the casting. If you don't have a, at least a good communication skills, have a, just communicate, then you're a dumbass. It ain't about kissing ass. I ain't kissing anybody's ass. Okay. Then why don't you go be a cowboy? You know, why don't you go be a, join the foreign legion or I don't want to be a cowboy, you know, come on. So I, I, uh, I, I think that, I think that, uh, guys just got to, they got to man up here a little bit sometimes and. And, but we didn't, that wasn't the right combination. I, I'm glad those guys got jobs, but they should have been playing. If they're is there a baseball lineup that should have been hitting seven, eight, and nine. That's all I'm saying. Let's talk about Eligante, uh, where cactus Jack is out. Eligante is in and Meltzer would report that he's booked to appear on several shows starting in just a few days, but Meltzer doesn't know if that's just to walk out or actually work. But he does know he's going to wrestle a match at the Omni on June the 16th against his trainer, the Cuban assassin. Uh, he says, uh, Eligante is perfecting a claw hold and he writes, I'm not kidding. I can be totally off base on this one. However, after seeing him in DC, he has potential as an attraction, but he were, he looked worse than lost. Um, he says if they start running him around too soon, he'll flop. And the best thing they can do is just take their time and make him an attraction. And he even suggests try to send him some, to some different territories or Japan to learn, but that's clearly not what they're going to go with. And you've told the story about the first time you met Eligante, but tell it again for those of us who maybe haven't heard it before. 
Oh, he was a, uh, he was in a CNN center at the food court. And, uh, you know, I don't remember how I, I was having lunch with maybe Keith Mitchell or anyway, we went back and told the, uh, powers that be, you know, who is that big son of a bitch running around with Stan Kasdan. Stan Kasdan was the GM of the Hawks and the Braves simultaneously sharp guy. Uh, so anyway, uh, come to find out, you know, that George Gonzalez was, uh, they, he, he was a basketball player, uh, an average basketball player at best. And that might be being kind. And, uh, so we found out that he was a basketball player <clears throat> and, uh, they were going to cut him. His tryout was more for publicity than anything else. On the off chance he might have some defensive skills or being able to play in the low block or whatever at seven feet six or seven, but he had no mobility whatsoever. His massive feet were virtually immobile or immobile. Want to pick up whichever one you want there, and uh, so you know, of course, everybody's light bulb goes off. Oh my God, we'll create our own Andre. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. And, but to create your own Andre, you got to have a Andre like mindset or Andre like to drink all night and hang with the guys and man's man. You know, George is not a partier. George is very, uh, the most excitement I ever saw from George was when he danced with Missy Hyatt at, uh, some show we did in Arizona, uh, some pay-per-view we did and dusty and myself, Missy camera crew. And George were there and it's supposed to show the producer's human side that George, you know, George is a, he's a freak of nature, but he's a common guy type thing, blah, blah, blah. And he's supposed to be dancing with Missy and he, he didn't even do that. Well, God bless him. So he, he, he put his heart and soul in dancing with her. George liked Missy, but, uh, he, he just didn't have a lot of talent, no charisma, nicest guy in the world. And if ironically, you know, when he got out of the business, and he went back home, he was broke. And I remember, uh, Harvey, uh, Whippleman, Bruno Lauer sent used to send him money. Uh, it was sad because he's taking care of his whole family. It was a sad story. How it all ended. He wasn't prepared for his, for his wealth and therefore he didn't last long. So, uh, the nice guy, but we did not train him correctly. The, the, we will never know how good El Gigante could have been because his training was mishandled from the very first day. And it was always a rush job. Well, we're going to book him in South Carolina in six weeks. Are you going to be shitting me? South Carolina can wait in all due respect to South Carolina. But if we had done what, what Melcher suggested in, in a large sense, uh, Andre worked seven years or something before he wrestled in North America. 
What did you, know, you he, think of, uh, of the Cuban assassin as a trainer? You're not necessarily disparaging him as the trainer. Oh no, absolutely not. But you can't No, Dave Sierra is a, is a hell of a trainer and a solid fundamentally sound guy still is, but here you're looking at a guy that has absolutely no, uh, uh, background, no fandom, no, I followed this as a kid deal. This is all I've ever wanted to be deal. He didn't know it come here from Sikkim about pro wrestling. I, I had, I had the distinct honor of, of helping him in promo class. And I don't know that even the great dusty Rhodes could have solved this one. So we go with all these promos and you say this, and you, you know, you gotta, you know, have this thought about well, I'm trying to get him to speak from his heart, but he don't know what to say. Right. So you gotta give okay, here, say these three things. So at the end of the day, uh, I, uh, the, here's, here's what we got. We worked probably three hours. Here's what we got in three, two, Rick flair. I kill you. Doesn't get old. Doesn't get old. Rick flair. I kill you. Okay. George, that's your cut. <laughs> so that's it. That's all we got. I said, what else? I kill him. Okay. How about a funeral? What, come on. Give me something, George. Help us out here. Well, there was a funeral after the, uh, June 6th show in Columbia, South Carolina. It seems like you guys tried to kill the town originally. <laughs> it's uh flair versus JYD on top, but they find out that JYD booked his own indie booking in his hometown of North Carolina there. So they let him out of the South Carolina show. I don't know why that would happen, but then they asked Lex Luger, uh, who had started back on June 1st to step in and take his place in the main event. But. Luger says, Nope, I was given the night off to see my son's basketball game and I'm not coming. So he wrestles Ricky Morton on top instead. And that was probably the best match of the probably three. Is, yeah. I started to say part of the best match of the night. Boy, this is the uh, inmates running the asylum though. Is it not? No, I got a basketball game and no, I got an indie booking that pays me more money. I'm going to go do that. Oh, he didn't care. He was there getting a paycheck. He had the, the inmates had taken over the asylum and they weren't and all the inmates weren't even smart inmates. They were setting a, a, a on a, the old bird nest on the ground thing, working with Turner. If they could just put a little extra work in and get over and take a bigger hand in their own future and how they execute their characters, blah, blah, blah. But that didn't happen there. Morale was absolutely deplorable. It was not a fun place to work, but man, there's some great talent there. When, he, when we go back and as we look through this, this show, Jesus Christ almighty, it was a, it really was a who's who, but nobody, but they weren't used correctly as we will prove. Let's talk a little bit about the, the big takeaway from that show on June the 6th, though, in South Carolina, the last match on the card is the midnight express taking on Tom Zink and Brian Pillman, but midnight on top. That makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, maybe what makes a little less sense is a ringside fan got out of hand and actually punches Jim Cornette in the nose. Uh, and in the process bloodies his nose. Well, you can guess what happens next. Jim Cornette hit the fan several times. Fat bastards. So yeah, Cornette hits the guy in the face several times with his racket. Uh, and the guy as Meltzer would write is, well, let me just read it here who, as it turned out is semi-retarded several times in the face with his tennis racket. The incident made some press in the area. So you have a special needs fan who's gotten a little, uh, overly excited, shall we say. And as a result yep. punches Jim Cornette and Cornette ain't having it. 
he probably doesn't know that this is a special needs fan and just reacts. Oh, no. He would have known. Yeah. Hey, okay. hey, look, that's, you get those. He came from when Cornette had the Midnight Express red hot in the Mid South. There were people there that legitimately, and this is not me embellishing. Oh, it's the old timer talking wrestling again. He's old and, you know, everybody should wear black tights and wool, wool boots or some shit, uh, whatever. Uh, Corny has, has been assaulted so many times in the mid South because he, he carried heat. His team had heat. They didn't get beat every week. And so Watts knew how to book them. Right. And he let Cornette be, do be Cornette. So, you know, I mean, ex- the exception where he wanted, he wanted, he wanted to slip one by me one time that I, I think I'm missing this. His line was she had the prettiest teeth I ever come across cut. You're not going to say that. What don't act innocent. That ain't happening. But you know, he was so in that, when you get in that environment and it's so unpredictable, you don't know who's got a knife. Who's got anything. It's not like now where they go through metal detectors. Right. Shit. So it's scary sometimes. So I, I guarantee you, he didn't know who that, that kid was, uh, had special needs and had, had this handicap. So, uh, but it was a, it did, but Hey, you don't hear about this anymore. We don't have to worry about this anymore. Hardly because I don't hear of any heels getting assaulted because they're rest. There's their men playing the roles of heels instead of being heels. Big difference. Let's, uh, let's move on here and talk about some other news that may surprise a lot of people. Uh, Meltzer would write that Ric Flair met with the president, George Bush, this prior Wednesday night at a fundraiser for Senator Jesse Helms in Charlotte. Apparently Flair was requested by the president, not only to be attendance, uh, at the dinner, but to sit at the head table with all the local leading politicians. And when Bush introduced Flair to the audience, uh, North Carolina governor Jim Martin held up four fingers and Flair got a pretty big pop. This is uh pretty crazy, is it not? Yeah, it's great. It, it's it's just if there hadn't been so much uncertainty, uh, out of control egos and uh, insecurities in that entire division, uh, that that publicity would have been gold. It should have been gold. And then when you find out that you know TVS is not going to allow it to air because of some weak ass political reason or some executive in a blue jacket and a white shirt and a red tie, whose nuts wouldn't fit to a thimble, you know, they got, they'll, they'll, they'll squash it while they not understanding that that's going to make Ric Flair a much bigger star because everybody knows who George Bush is. Now in my report from Meltzer, he's saying that the white house wouldn't allow TBS to use the footage because it made it look like the president was endorsing flair. And of course, flair endorsing be- for what he's not running for anything. Is he? Well, I think it just means, I mean, flair had a reputation even back here in 89 and 90. Did he not? That he could be, uh, well, a little, uh, a little wild. Yeah. Well, so, <laughs> so <laughs> one of the things I found interesting here is that, uh, and I didn't even know this, but the last day of, uh, September, 1989, the governor of South Carolina, Carol Campbell, uh, the father of a uh, friend of the family, Mike Campbell declared, uh, Rick flair day in South Carolina. So man, that whole flair country shit, that's for real. Yes. Yeah, deep. The roots uh, go deep in that thing. And it's legit. It's not just a, you know, 
He's a God down there and, he's, and everywhere to a lesser degree to some, in some areas, but in that area, she, you know, he's, uh, he's, he's, he's big time major league, big time. Let's talk a little bit about, um, where flair is as we head into this show, this is going to really dominate the dirt sheets and the hotlines and the rumor and innuendo. Uh, Meltzer would say, while this newsletter is being written several days before the bash pay-per-view event from Baltimore, most of you won't be reading it until the event is history. At this point, it would appear the biggest news story of the week would be whether or not sting won the NWA title for Ric Flair at the show. At least that's the biggest question on the surface of things, but the underlying result of the Flair sting match is a much bigger question. It's one that ties in both of the major promotions in the United States. And the question is the future of Ric Flair. So there's a big debate whether or not Flair is going to be out of here or if he's going to stick around specifically, uh, and, and it's circled here, even in the newsletter, WrestleMania seven is March 24th, 1991 in Los Angeles. It's well before Flair's NWA contract expires. And even if it wasn't a Flair Hogan match properly promoted as the main event at WrestleMania. Flair would have to be on WWF TV and pushed hard for at least six months, preferably nine months. That means if a move isn't made in the near future, a Flair Hogan match in LA would be out of the question. So there's a big debate about, you know, how much leverage he has as champion. And you've got to appreciate this is a different era. So the champion still has a little bit of leverage and this is sort of newfound territory for Turner. As you sort of laid out, the office feels a little bit like the wild west. And there's a lot of debate is the writing on the wall is, you know, what opportunities exist. And Meltzer would say in Flair's case at this stage of his career, whether he would want to admit it publicly or not, he has to be somewhat frustrated, even though he is regarded within the profession as being the best of his era, as he's never received the media and general public recognition that goes with that standing being in the spotlight at an event, which in the in sheer impressiveness of the figure, 104,000 people live is sure to generate would at least somewhat rectify that being in the main event of a WrestleMania would also give him credibility and name recognition with a segment of the public that probably doesn't know who he is. The stumbling block of course is the contract and you know, lots of folks are in and out here at this point. The uh, NWA in particular, Jim Hurd, who along with Jack Petrick and perhaps Ole Anderson's are, are the ones who are ultimately going to have to make the decision. But the question is, is Flair going to want out of his contract? If he's not champion, you were there. How much of this is <clears throat> trumped up stuff for the newsletter and how much of it is, uh, Hey, he might really be out of here. I think he wanted to leave. Uh, we, we had several chats about it, just, you know, having a cocktail or something. Um, and you know, you know, I nobody look, if you were, I don't know how to explain it. It's hard to explain. I, I love living in Atlanta. And for most of the time I love working for WCW, but there was a point in time and this is infringing upon that time where it just really wasn't much fun to work. There's always the, the, the drama, the politics, the uncertainties, decision makers with no product knowledge, you know, uh, uh too many, too many, uh, uh, wrestlers, uh, with, with a little bit of creative uh, influence 
that had dogs in the hunt that didn't need to be there. All kinds of things. It's not just a bad scenario all the way around. So if you would have asked a lot of us, would you like to go to WWE? I would have said, hell yes, absolutely. And I was the lead guy in WCW. Damn right. I'd have left because it had structure. It had one boss. You got, got one answer, not, you know, 10 different answers, whatever. And it was all still, and it was still perceived as the, the, the big time, just like it is now. So yeah, but Ricky, Ricky, he wanted to, he wanted to be happy and have fun and get back and doing what he does and, and get away from all that, the, the politics. He's not a good politician. He doesn't play well with others in that arena, in my view, nor should he have to quite frankly. So uh, I knew he wanted he, look, I always believed the best thing that we could have done was to sit down with him and work out an exit plan. He wants to go. There's hard, there's, I don't know. Is there anything here logically that you can do WCW that will entice him to want to stay where he's going to say, oh, okay, well, you're going to do that now. Hey, I'm good. Nothing. There's nothing. So I think we should have sat down and created a good exit plan. Nobody should stay in your locker room. They don't want to be there, man. You can feel whatever you want. What's that make them a prostitute? Let's, uh, well, let's talk about the money for a minute. There's lots of debate about what Flair's contract is in this issue of the observer. Uh, he's been told that it's 550,000, but other people within WCW are insisting that it's 730,000. Are you privy to contracts in this era as Flair at 550 or 730? I think uh my guess would be he's closer to 730 than 550. I I think that he was uh, much closer to 730. Uh you know, everybody's dream in that era it may still be is to make a million a year guaranteed. And I think that's what he was getting close to uh wanting to get get at and Again, it could all have been worked out. It's just a matter of nobody communicating with anybody. I don't know who Rick's agent was or lawyer or who was representing him at that time. I had no idea. They didn't do a very good job. I can tell you that. Uh, and the guys at WCW did even a worse job in trying to establish a relationship that could be successful for the business of WCW. It became too personal. And that's a, that's a, not, that's not cool. It's not going to work. Things are bad when it gets that way. Let me ask you, you know, the Brad Hart was criticized by members of the clique, rightly or wrongly. I think Scott Hall used to refer to him as the $400,000 champion. The, the idea being, um, you can pay him less if he's champion. He, he really wants to be champion. That's what's most important to oh, him yeah. is to be champion. And the money is almost secondary. And at different times we've heard that flair would go to the Crockett's and complain about, you know, the way dusty had booked the horseman to look or, or whatever the case may be. Chat me up a little bit. Do you think that applied to Ric Flair as well? That his status on the card was more important than the status of his bank account. I, I think the status on the card, if that was a concern of his was one that he didn't need to have because he's Ric Flair. He's always going to be, uh, in the, in the top, uh, of the card, you know, main event, double main event, co-main event, something, he's always going to be in that conversation. So he had nothing to worry about there. That's his own insecurities. I don't think Rick at that time 
uh, was all about the title or hey, make me the champion and pay me less. I think it wanted to, it wanted to maximize his income. You know, he'd gone through a lot of money during those times. And, uh, as that 30 for 30 documented, you know, uh, it was, uh, it's life in the fast lane, man. And he saw an opportunity to start cashing in while he could still wrestle and, and maximize those paydays because there's not going to be, there's not an endless amount of them left. So I just think he saw that the right, the, the father time was tapping the shoulder. Let's go make this money. And I think that's more motivation. The money was more motivating than anything else. And having a big run in WWE on top, having a run with Hogan should easily make you over a million dollars. One of the things that's happening on the other channel, and, and I guess we could talk about it now is Hulk Hogan is no longer champ. And I think the original plan was to have sting beat flair before the knee injury. And of course sting gets hurt. So they have to debut, they have to delay it. And so it's happening in July, but it was supposed to have happened before WrestleMania six. So there would be a passing of the torch from the old platinum blonde headliner, Ric Flair to the new face painted, uh, upstart that's got all the kids excited sting. But instead that story happens for the WWF at WrestleMania six first. When the ultimate warrior beats Hulk Hogan for their top spot in the world championship, how much of the decision to go with sting here by WCW is sort of monkey see monkey do with, well, this is what they're doing. Maybe we should, you know, sort of freshen our product and go with a a young neon face painted youthful superstar that the kids are going to look up to. Well, the discussion for Sting to be the top guy and become the champion had been ongoing for a long time, uh, maybe a year before that. Uh, everybody saw that when Crockett bought Watts, his most uh, viable assets that lasted the longest uh, were Sting, the Steiners, Trying to think who else I thought UWF roster, maybe me, maybe, uh, but sting was the star. It was easily, uh, denoted. It just, was a matter of when, uh, the problem with the, that deal that we're talking about the timing sting, we had great momentum for sting building into the, where he, where he tore his, his kneecap, his patella that put him in surgery and out for several months. Uh, everything was had crescendoed once. And it's just hard to recreate that in a, in a few months on that timeline, but they wanted to get, because of the volatility of Rick's situation, that was another issue that had to be dealt with. And again, dealt with by either a booker that didn't get, care if they, either one were there in Ole or, or Jim Hurd, who had no product knowledge and thought he knew, uh, wrestling because he knew Sam Mushnick. So I, I, I don't know. It wasn't a copycat deal for sure, because the thought of sting being the, the new hot, you know, sizzling, uh, shiny new champion, young guy, uh, have been talked about for a long time. Yeah. Going back to the first clash of the champions, it was apparent that, you know, sting had a bright future and it's unfortunate that the knee injury delays it, but Meltzer would write a few days before the bash that he was scheduled to return on June 29th in Detroit. And he did appear at the show and he was scheduled to wrestle, but it was announced that the doctor hadn't released him to wrestle. So he would 
instead interfere, causing flair to get pinned each night. Um, was there some concern that he wasn't going to be able to make the pay-per-view or were you guys just taking extra precautions to make sure he'd be ready for the show? Largely precautionary, but certainly concerns over anybody coming back off of surgery. Uh, you know, nowadays surgery is so much more, uh, seemingly more, uh, precise, uh, more refined, but some of those things, especially on knees, even in those days are still a little bit experimental. So you, you wonder how, if everything's going to be okay, but yeah, more precautionary than anything else. He seemed to be, he was a real, uh, Trojan was Steve Borden on his, his, uh, uh, physical, uh, therapy. He worked really hard, very dedicated. Uh, you know, he's, he, he's a gym guy, you know, he had Luger on that gym in Atlanta for a good while, but he, he was a workout freak. So he, he, he did really well in his rehab. So we thought he was well, all reports and going to, you know, we had him in Dr. Andrews in Birmingham, which is the best. Uh, he was, he was released and ready to roll. So with no issues there, just want to be, just be careful. That's all be smart. Let's, uh, let's keep it moving here and talk about, uh, some other guys who are thinking about coming in. It's Terry Gordy and your boy, Dr. Death, Steve Williams. They've negotiated a deal to come in as a tag team between tours, uh, from Japan, sort of like Stan Hansen had been doing. And in the middle of this, they're asking price is a thousand dollars a piece per show. And all says that's too high. Meltzer would say that is too high for a house show, but perhaps it could mean something to a pay-per-view. And he thinks that, you know, there could be value there for the forgotten Gordy and Williams names, uh, since, uh, they haven't been seen a lot. Do you remember these negotiations with your old pal, Dr. Death coming in? Yeah. And I thought Ole liked those guys. I think he did like them. They're kind of his kind of, uh, heel team. They could feel a comeback. They're, they were brutal or vicious, believable. Uh, I still believe one of the, the greatest matches I ever had the privilege of calling was a, uh, Steiner brothers versus a doc and Gordy match. And I, I long for those days. I'd love for any teams, uh, of that magnitude, that much physicality, uh, to get over to the level those guys are in today's marketplace and watch how much money they'll draw. Be amazing. Uh, but yeah, I, but they did the money was, they were making great money in Japan. Uh, they were looking to pick up obviously some extra cash, but it, it had to be worth their while. Uh, I can't imagine, you know, staying a long tour in Japan, coming home for a few days and going right back on the road for uh, WCW. Uh, but so to do that, you need to pay the dudes and I, I whatever they're asking, they, I don't, maybe they worked it out. I don't know if they worked it out with Ole, but I know, I know they worked it out with Cowboy because they were just, they were too good to be true. Sure. We, they, they were like getting us. You know, in, in a uh, expansion draft, and and he found these two uh, free agents, and he and he's you grab them for nothing, and that's what really that would have been about a thousand, not two grand for the team, nothing. So I I would have done that in a heartbeat. Let's get to the actual show. Uh, there's one dark match. You're gonna have Dave Sierra. This is the uh, Cuban assassin working as a babyface. He's gonna pin Doctor X, which is Randy Cully, in ten minutes and six seconds. Meltzer didn't like it. Gave it negative one star. The actual show starts with you doing commentary with Bob Cottle, and yep. um, Bob is a name that that Tony Schiavone has been campaigning for on our podcast. What happened when on Wednesdays? Uh, that Bob should be in the hall of fame 
Where do you put Bob Cottle in the all-time pecking order? A Hall of Famer, man. No doubt about it in my view. I, but we're going to screw that up, our business, being so goddamn egocentric and, and uh, fragile, everybody's feelings. You know, Bob's not getting any younger. And uh, he needs to go to the Hall of Fame when he can experience it. And I love him. I love Bob Cottle. Uh, I love Jackie, his wife. They live together in a, in a assisted living uh, facility there in Raleigh. I saw him last year at the uh, WrestleCade event there in the Carolinas on Thanksgiving. Uh, I think he's great. Uh, I he was the voice of Mid Atlantic Wrestling for years. For sure, he was their guy, and uh, you know uh, he he was a he was a play by play guy. In real life, he was he did news on uh, WRAL. Uh, on, on air personalities, booth announcer, salt of the earth, man. His two, both his sons are doctors. Uh, he's just raised a great family and he's a real good man. So hell yeah. Any hall of fame that anybody would, that, uh, he's, he's eligible for any of this has to do with pro wrestling. So I love working with him. He he's always reliable. Golly. And we had so much fun, uh, traveling together, eating, to, eating our lunch together, picking our little spots like we're two. I felt like we were on the cast of the golden girls. Well, where do you want to eat today? Oh, I don't know. Where do you want to eat? You know, so, so <laughs> and it usually ended up being cracker barrel, but nonetheless, it was fun dialogue. I love Bob. He's, he's really good. And he, he was Tony Schiavone's guy and Gordon, I guess, but Tony Schiavone loved Bob Cottle because Bob Cottle was the voice of mid Atlantic and mid Atlantic was Tony's territory. Yeah. It was the voice of Tony's childhood. And most people yeah, these days yeah. say Tony was the voice of theirs. Um, what'd you think of this show? Watching it back for the first time, the, the opening graphic where we've got like the, the revolutionary look with, you know, the drawing of sting and the drawing of Ric Flair. Uh, it's kind of fun for the time. That seems like a bit of a step out for you guys. Y'all spent some money on that. The guy at Turner home entertainment's name was Steve Chamberlain, a sharp young guy, you know, upperly mobile in that world. And when Turner home entertainment saw the opportunities to make extra money and create new money for their budgets, uh, through the WCW vehicle, they started spending a little bit more money on the, some of the, the, the little whistles and bells that you're referring to. And but it was good it was, it was probably one of our slicker promotions. Again, if you watch real closely, you can almost feel that this is, uh, the, this is the launching of a new brand and a new era all defined around the face painted sting. So it was very, almost too obvious at times that there was a passing of the torch, but I thought that they did a nice job with that. And interesting show, some parts of it. I liked some parts of it. I still scratch my head. Why the hell we do that? Well, let's get into it. Our first match, Brian Pillman in there with buddy Landell, Buddy's already in the ring, looking like a dollar store, Ric Flair. Uh, and out comes Brian Pillman, maybe a bit of a production snafu there. His name's not on the Chiron. Uh, the music is super delayed, but this is Bengal tights. Brian Pillman at his best. I thought this was a, a really good match, uh, two and three quarters. It really surprised me. Uh, I don't think these guys have worked together very often at this point, but it still came together. Nice. Of course, the uh, finish comes with a flying body press off the top rope, which was a big deal in 1990. Nine minutes and 32 seconds. Meltzer dug it, called it a good television opener gave it two and three quarter stars. What'd you think? I agree with that. I, uh, I don't know how many stars I would give it. Uh, but I, I thought they had a real solid opener 
uh, that accomplished what we wanted to. And that was have a nice wrestling match with a few high spots and a real cool finish and the hero going over. So that was how that worked out. And, and buddy, buddy Landell could be really, really good, uh, on certain nights. I mean, really good. Uh, he didn't hold a candle. Nobody, he was, he didn't told you know, backseat to anybody, uh, Conrad when he was right, when he wasn't messed up or hung over or impaired some way, uh, buddy Landell was a, really a, a top star. And I think sometimes that nature boy thing that he started calling himself bit him in the ass. It hurt him. It hurt him. I mean, here's the thing. If Buddy Landell had, had done almost anything else, I think he would have been taken a little more seriously because you're right. Bell to bell, probably as good as it gets. But you know, if you're trying to mimic someone else, uh, there seems like, and you've talked about this before. If you put the word new in front of something, you're dead. Uh, well, I mean, he didn't do that, but he all but did that. Right. Yeah. He didn't do anything to build his own image. Everything was predicated on Ric Flair's image. And that's, uh, not smart marketing for buddy Landell. Well, next up is some interesting marketing. We've got uh, a Harley race promo and Harley's got different gear here. Rather than just wearing tr- tights, he's got a, a singlet on and not the best promo, uh, from Harley here. It feels like he's a little all over the place. He's saying that, you know, Flair's not ready. He could lose tonight. And then he talks about his opponent tonight, Tommy rich, uh, who, um, are both former NWA champions. Next up, we've got the iron Sheik coming to the ring and the iron Sheik at WCW just seems out of place to me. Uh, he's going to be taking on captain Mike Rotunda. Of course, we're looking for something for Mike Rotunda to do. He's not quite IRS, but he's no longer the varsity club. So you guys put him in a hat and puts an anchor on his ass. And now God. he's a boat captain. <laughs> Woo. Uh, the match is okay. Uh, I, I particularly like the pinning combination. Uh, because you could see that the iron Sheik was going to get loose from the backslide and rotunda spins into place to make sure his shoulders stayed down. It looked about as good as it can. Three quarters yeah. of a star, six minutes, 51 seconds. This match was just sort of here for me. It was a pre-show match. Maybe, or maybe it shouldn't be, have been booked at all. The thing about was look, you see, uh, Sheik nowadays. You know, lovable grandpa. I, you know, he's been a cool. He's one of my oldest friends forever, since the seventies, man. You can't. I, I can't say bad things about him because I think he's that interesting. I love the guy, but he needed. He needed to be in tags exclusively, at that point of his career. That's a nice way of booking him. If you want to keep the guy working, keep some paydays coming. He lives in Atlanta. WCW, okay, all makes sense. Then shoot, uh, book him in tags. Not the very athletic, still going strong, Mike Rotunda. Not good booking on our part or Ole's part, whoever. Hey, look, I was there, so I'll take the criticism as well. It doesn't matter to me. Um, next up, we've got Doug Furness and Dutch Mantell. Doug Furness <clears throat> is billed as the world's strongest man here. Dutch Mantell, uh, yeah, this is fun. Uh, this match is, uh, interesting because it is, well, they have similar physiques, right? Jim? No. (laughs) (laughs) So which one is Dutch? The hairy one. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, Dutch is, uh, he's, he's probably the, the veteran of the group working a more Memphis style. Of course, Doug being from Knoxville, you've got two Tennessee boys in here. 
a belly to belly suplex that's worth going out of your way to see one of the most realistic like snap style belly to belly suplexes you'll see 11 minutes and 18 seconds um you know there's probably a little bit of styles clash here but yeah. a pretty good outing for doug furnace uh, especially you know so young in his career styles uh we make matches we talked about timing uh the timing of this theme of this night is off the the fact that Doug did not have uh, a lot of pre-match ballyhoo. Uh, he had been working so much in Japan. That's where he made his made his name. Uh, amazing athlete from Oklahoma, Commerce. I used to kid him and his brother. His brother went to Tennessee as well, played football for Coach Philip Fulmer. I said, you'll always be the second most famous athlete from Commerce, Oklahoma. Because the first most famous athlete from Commerce, Oklahoma, is Mickey Mantle. So he's from Mickey Mantle's hometown. Great all-state football players, all that good stuff. Went to NEO JUCO in Miami, and then all of a sudden he's a star at Tennessee. I said on that deal, the way in hindsight, the match should have been about eight minutes, not eleven eighteen, and uh, it should have been a fast start by Furnace, a little heat stop by Dutch, come back by Furnace. Go home. Simple. One set of heat. That's all. Don't overthink this shit and don't go because they would have gone longer if you let them. Didn't need it. Next up, Harley Race and Tommy Rich. I thought this was about as good as I remember seeing Tommy Rich. Uh, they go six minutes and 29 seconds. Um, Meltzer says, I don't think they ever announced Race being there on television. So it was somewhat of a surprise. Race was booed a little, Rich was booed a lot. And, uh, most would say actually race looked just fine. His moves were all solid and well executed. It was slow by today's standards, but lots of nice moves, but fans didn't really care about the match. But when race won, there was a big instant pop since nobody expected that result two and a half stars. And it looks like it's going to be a similar finish because it's a flying body press off the top, which we just saw with Brian Pillman, but Harley's going to reverse it, keep the leg hooked. And, um, the seven time NWA champion is victorious here and, well, it's maybe an upset because Tommy Rich has been around the NWA for a while, and it feels like Harley's probably in the twilight of his career. I enjoyed this one, though, especially given their history, going back to 81 when uh, Rich beat Race for the title originally. Uh, what did you think of this match, watching it back for the first time in a long time? I thought they managed their time well. Uh, I uh, Getting their business taken care of in uh, six and a half minutes worked for me. Uh, it's just... They're, they're, you're working a, a, with a deficiency there of not enough television time. There's no angle. You know, the fact that, uh, Harley and Tommy had their issue way back in the day, a decade before, I think it was, uh, just didn't, didn't correlate. They had both had great name identity. I know Tommy at that time was really trying to find his way back. And with Ole booking, you know, Tommy thought that he had a, a better than good opportunity for that to happen. And of course, uh, anybody in wrestling, Ole Anderson included, uh, that don't respect Harley race, is just not paying attention. So, uh, getting Harley on the card, getting him a payday and then working with Tommy, that to me, those styles worked. We talked about styles and all this stuff and the six and a half minutes really fit nicely. Let's get to the, the real main event of the show, at least for me. And, uh, I got to admit, I'm a fanboy for this match. Um, uh, Meltzer loved it too. He called it a match of the year candidate. I'm going to recommend if you go watch one match this week, 
uh, on the WWE network, make it this one. The midnight express are going to retain the United States tag team titles, beating the Southern boys in 18 minutes and 14 seconds. Um, Meltzer would write the Southern boys gimmick gets a negative reaction in the North and everyone likes the midnights because they're so entertaining, but this match got the Southern boys over with everyone. Well, I guess we should address the elephant in the room. The Southern boys gimmick here is Steve Armstrong and Tracy Smothers, uh, who are, you know, the prototype of what a wrestler should look like in 1990, but they're stuck in Confederate soldier uniforms with the stars and bars on the back. That doesn't necessarily age well, and it's certainly not popular in Baltimore, but man, these guys were outstanding. And I really noticed in this, how many tags there were with the midnights, but more specifically that Stan is in and out and Bobby's carrying the whole damn show. This is an outstanding performance by Bobby Eaton. One of the best matches probably of his career. Tracy Smothers looked like a million bucks here too. I can't put this over enough four and three quarter stars is what it got in the observer. I would recommend you go watch it. What'd you think, Jim? Oh, classic. It was a classic match. Love calling it. You know, that's kind of what you, you salivate over the ones you think can really be good. And then when they over deliver, you're even that much more happy. Uh, and that's what, you know, Cornette and his guy, Cornette, you know, Cornette put together a hell of a match. I can promise you that all, everybody in the match had a hand or had a suggestion, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, Cornette's going to be the guy that's going to tie all the loose ends together and, and, and create that, uh, strategy for a great match. And they had, as Conrad said, folks, they had a classic. It's one of those great tag team matches. We're using strategy, doing things behind the referee's back, you know, using common sense logic that one would do if it were not a fictional presentation. And, uh, they, it was really good. They, they had that, that, uh, if you didn't watch it, Conrad said, I, I agree. If you don't watch anything else in the show, uh, you sure as hell ought to watch that tag match midnight and the Southern boys. And they just, they delivered and it was innovative. They were ahead of their time on a lot of stuff. And you'll see when, when you watch it, oh, that's what he's talking about. Yeah. The, this martial arts thing was added in. Oh, they did this thing with these kicks are unique. All that stuff looks you known to now today. But then all that stuff is very innovative and you'll, you'll like it. I can't recommend it enough. Go out of your way to watch it. Uh, the crowd is fun to watch in this too, because they are so into the end with these false finishes. I mean, they're at a fever pitch at the end, and sometimes the crowd makes a match that much better. And this is one of those examples. Go out of your way to watch it. It's the best match you'll see this week. 18 minutes, 14 seconds. Uh, next up, we've got something kind of interesting. Tom Zink gets the Hulk Hogan treatment. You know, back in the day, they used to follow Hogan to the ring uh, from behind every now and again. It was sort of a cool visual, and they did it at a WrestleMania with Steve Austin here, there. And uh, Tom gets that, but it's almost he's inviting you to his own funeral because he's taking <laughs> on a debuting Big Van Vader uh, who's got the different mask and different ring gear than you're used to, but he's still got that uh, iconic headdress that he wears out to the ring. And does a little ceremonial dance and Bob Cottle calls it a, an ancient samurai headpiece. And, um, yeah, 399 pounds of ass kicking and only gets half a star, but really it's just because it's a squash match, two minutes and 16 seconds. Meltzer says the crowd was quiet because they couldn't figure out if Vader was a face or a heel. I thought that would be pretty apparent when he comes down blowing steam out of his mask, but maybe I'm wrong. 
What'd you think of the debut here for Vader in WCW? That match accomplished everything that we were looking for it to do. Uh, Leon's making his debut. We, we got the, the full entrance with the headpiece, which became a giant pain in the ass to move around and transport and all that stuff. Uh, Leon, I remember wore his black mask and it was especially, uh, villainous, really, really good. It looked great. And, uh, as you would expect, Leon was going to make sure that Leon laid his stuff in. So, uh, where, as I respect Dave's opinion, half a star, it was a squash match. It was meant for one guy to dominate. And that's exactly how it was executed. And, uh, it got people talking about big van Vader. It was exactly what we needed. So I, I mildly disagree, disagree with that rating because it was, how can you have anything other than a, a star to predictably in, in two minutes or less? You can't really, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not that smart. I don't care how you, how you can do that. But nonetheless, uh, I, I thought the match was good. I thought Leon made a good statement for his first outing and he laid his shit in. It was almost, uh, disturbing at times. Yeah. He's used sort of sparingly here. Um, he's going to come back to the company seven months later, uh, for wrestle war, but this isn't like the beginning of this monster run for him. Um, and I guess we should mention this match happens just a few months after his eye pops out of his socket battling Stan Hansen in Japan. Mm-hmm. Did you know when Vader was coming in here that this was a one-off? Was this some sort of weird talent exchange from new mm-hmm. Japan or what no, was, what was no, the big we, picture? I saw, uh, somebody sent me the tape of, uh, Leon and Stan's match where Leon's eye popped out and the, how that Leon was laying those punches as clubbing, uh, blows. I think Dusty's called, he was clubbering. Uh, but he was, he's this through those almost like they're like forearms, but they're fists and forearms. It was just a, it was like a giant limb swatting in the face. And so I'm thinking, man, we need, we got to have some fresh blood. We need some, we need some, some heels again, knowing that sooner than later, we're going to have a real popular baby face champion that has to have adversaries that people feel are true, legitimate threats to say that Stan Hansen and big Van Vader would not be legitimate threats to sting. I think would be wrong. That's how I looked at it. So, uh, the plan was to bring Leon over Leon really wanted to get more full-time work, but he was making so much money in Japan that he couldn't just turn his back on that. I don't think we could offer him at the time, uh, the equivalent thereof. So uh, he was looking at the supplement his income, but eventually working to a full-time situation, which he eventually did, uh, in WCW and then coming to WWE, uh, as well. So where he wasn't dependent on Japan, but no, we were going to use him, uh, on a, as much as we could get dates on him, uh, sort of being full-time same thing with Stan. Stan wanted to stay loyal to his uh, Japanese ties, but he also wanted to come pick up some paydays and eventually maybe, uh, have a little bit more balanced where he was in the States. He had a son playing baseball at Baylor and, you know, he, he was, a, he's a dad. So, uh, I think all that kind of catches up with everybody at some point in time. So. Uh, we were going to use those guys a lot more than we ended up doing. Again, the politics, uh, came into play, uh, and it was unnecessary. Sometimes if you don't, if it's not your idea, I found out in the world of wrestling, if it's not someone's idea, 
they're, 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 they're not as apt to promote it or yeah. to push, push it, you know? So that's kind of where we're with that. But I, I thought Leon and Stan would have been great additions to the WCW on a full-time basis. If we could have worked everything out. I feel like we should mention that, um, there's lots of little cutaway interviews here in between matches and we got a free bird interview. It started with Jimmy Garvin and then it goes to, uh, uh, Michael Hayes. And these guys are, well, they're dressed rather interestingly. They're covered in glitter. They've got on like eyeshadow and eyeliner and, uh, almost looks a little bit like, a an, ador- uh, an Adrian street look of sorts that the Freebirds were going for. And, uh, an okay promo from Garvin. But Michael Hayes showed you why he was the talker of the group. He had a great line to close with. Uh, there's only two things you can do about it. Nothing and learn to love it or something like that. Yeah. Uh, and, and they're going to be taking on the, the Steiner brothers. And on paper, this is two of the biggest name tag teams ever, the free birds and the Steiners, but it yep. does feel like once they get out there that, okay, I don't know if this is going to work. This might be a styles clash type deal, but they make the most of it. 13 minutes, 46 seconds. Meltzer dug it gave it three and a quarter stars. What'd you think? I thought it was, uh, it overachieved. I didn't think it'd be as good as it was, but it was, it, it surprised me pleasantly. I enjoyed the match. Uh, the free birds and the Steiners think about if Michael had been on the apron outside and, uh, and it was, it had been. Uh, Buddy and Terry, uh, or even Terry and and Jimmy Garvin, and Michael doing the talking and distracting and passing nucks and all that good stuff on the outside, as old Bobby Heenan used to tell me. Trip, distract, and pass nucks. That's what managers do. Uh, so, but it just it didn't it, it 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 didn't quite have the feel. I didn't ever feel that the that the Steiners are any kind of danger. I never felt the Steiners are in any significant jeopardy because they're just so goddamn physically imposing that it, I weren't, I wasn't concerned about them, uh, with Michael and Jimmy and because they're, they're the classic chicken shit heels. You, you lie, you cheat, you steal the Eddie Guerrero thing. Uh, but I just didn't feel that they ever, they really threatened the Steiners, but I liked the match and I'm, and I'm, I'm glad they're a book. Like you said, Conrad, so wisely. Two of the greatest teams in wrestling history that night. Good stuff. Let's take a minute here and talk about the Frankensteiner. You know, a lot's been made about the Steiner brothers. They're probably my favorite tag team for when I was a kid. And a lot of that had to do with the Frankensteiner. And uh, I know Scott takes issue with it. If you call it the hurricane Rana, uh, but it was uh, ahead of its time. And certainly for a guy that big to be doing it on American television, uh, that's pretty cool. Did, did you think in 1990 here, this is the hottest move in the business? Yeah, absolutely. Got unique and Scotty did it so well. And, you know, he's thick and big and, you know, like you said, his size made it even more impressive. And I think Cornette gave it the Frankensteiner name. And I mean, he and, I think Cornette and I were working together on some show there and, uh, Scotty broke that move out and Cornette came up with the name Frankensteiner. And it was just great fit perfectly. It's lasted all this time and it's cause it was organic and he just it came up with it. So that's part of Cornette's genius as well. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was spectacular. And see, the funny thing about it is that what fans got to understand is, uh, you know, things have changed so much that you, in 1990, think about how long ago 1990 was. 
and how things have changed since that time in the wrestling business, especially a lot of execution. And there's a problem that lies within that as well. I love, and I saw a lot of the AEW show, uh, uh, these kids taking massive risks, taking great chances, huge effort, Conrad, but you know, they got to have these interludes to let me process as a fan sitting at home and to take me, continue to motivate me to stay emotionally invested on this journey that we're on. And you can't do that without having your ample times to sell and to transition. And so that's, that, that's just a deal where you got all juiced up guys hot, that's got their, 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 uh, their, uh, you know, their p- passion is the blood flowing. The adrenaline I'm trying to find, say is amazing. And they don't realize how fast they're going. And so that's, that's just a, it's a different era, a different time, but to see a Frankensteiner in the days where a fireman's carry was a big deal was damn sure impressive. We also get a, a four horseman interview. Now Flair's not here for this interview, but we do have their manager, Ole Anderson, and we've got the other three of the four horsemen, Arn Anderson, Barry Windham, and Sid vicious. And, uh, they're all getting together here because they're going to be in a six man. Uh, let's talk about this version of the horseman. You know, I think everybody knows originally it was Flair, Arn, Tully, and Ole, mm-hmm. but that's changed, you know, over time. Uh, there's, you know, been the Lex Luger version and there's been the sting version and now Sid's in the group along with Barry Windham. what do you think of this incarnation? You whittle away and you whittle away and you make changes and you allow politics and personalities and egos to adversely affect an institution. Shame on us, shame on everybody involved. Are you trying to, you know, I, I'm, I'm sitting here and we're, I watch it and you and I are talking about it. I can't bring myself to comparing, uh, this version of the horseman, you mean, uh, uh you know, t- I'm missing Tully. Right. And it's not the horseman that, t- and where's JJ. Right. So there's key elements that I'm, I'm missing out of that. And they came about because of contractual issues, political issues, something that could have been communicated through and a solution be found that did not happen on so many cases, uh, in that era there. So many. The, the news would come down, I guess, around the 89 survivor series that Tully had failed the drug test. And I think, um, a lot of folks assumed that when Arn came back, Tully was going to come back. Why didn't Tully come back? Set the record straight. I guess that drug test got him on off, uh, off the do not fly list. So he, he would say that he had a verbal offer and then they would blame the drug test as a reason to offer him roughly half of what the original verbal offer was. He felt offended that it was lowballed. And he decides not to sign. So then I guess they call an audible and Sid's in instead. Um, how, how different do you think the horseman would have been? And more importantly, how different do you think Telly's career would have been had he sucked it up? And we've talked about this on the show. There's that old saying in wrestling. You've got to learn to eat shit and like the taste of it. Had he come back for less money? Do you think that that could have ever worked or, or at that time did Tully not have the temperament that that would have worked at all? I would like to believe that he had the temperament. If he had just uh, taken that one more step, 
Uh, he his he'd probably been back within months, maybe a year of back to his income level that he wanted needed. Uh, but that's how you do it. You roll your sleeves back up, get back to work. And, uh, because he was amazing in the ring and he and Arn had a, just a incredible, uh, timing. Amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Uh, so it would have helped the company too, because, you know, Arn and Tully by a lot of people's, uh, estimation were as good a tag team as there was. And I can tell you that if I had a territory and I had to pick, you know, two or three tag teams to start my territory, you damn sure better bet that Arn and Tully would be on that, that three or four team list. So, uh, and so would the Steiners, by the way, but that's the, that's the whole, the thing I, I just, uh, we needed Tully and we didn't have him and I, you know, I wasn't involved in the, that level of stuff. I'd love, I'd love to have been, I'd love to have had Hertz job or whoever was in that role, uh, see how it would have done. But I don't know what the thinking was for that deal. I think there's just so much to be made about failing a drug test that, you know, it should have been kept confidential. There's no reason for it to become public information. Uh, it should have, you know, just, it was handled wrong. And again, I don't know that Tully even had a chance to come in and talk about it. I really don't know that. If he did, it was a one-off. But just lack of communication kills you. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the next match on the show, which in- involves these horsemen. And Meltzer would call him the junk food dog, uh, LG Grande, and Paul Orndorff. <laughs> Uh, Before we address hmm. Elegante here, what did you think of, of Meltzer calling your buddy, Sylvester Ritter, the junk food dog? I mean, he would do it consistently through his newsletter and even abbreviate, abbreviate instead of JYD JFD. Well, the original junk food dog was me, uh, believe it or not. And that came from Ernie Ladd. And then, so then dog started calling me junk food. And, uh, you know, nobody as much junk food as he did, I swear to God, but Ernie, that was Ernie's deal, junk food dog. And so it got, this kind of become a nickname for me at that, in that era. I thought it was kind of funny, kind of like I'm being accepted by the boys because I got my own nickname. Uh, but it was just, I, 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 all it spoke to was an, in, it, Dave's was just basically calling out dog. He slipped off. He fell off the la- off the wagon here. He stopped training to any degree. His diet was the shits. Uh, he lost his edge. Uh, he had, he was a prisoner of, of, uh, of things he should not have been consuming. Uh, God bless him. And it got him by the short hairs and wouldn't let go. And, uh, I, I, I felt bad for that because that all that connotation, the junk food dog, this basically told me that, you know, it reminded me again, that Sylvester's not in a good place, not in a good place at all. The match is going to go eight minutes and 33 seconds. Smelter would say, uh, Elegante got a big pop coming to the ring. And there's no doubt that someday he's going to make this company a lot of money. But eh. I, <laughs> I have a feeling they could burn him out too soon. If they don't quit pushing him so fast before he learns match was okay to good with Orndorff in there. JFD got a nice reaction, but his stuff was terrible. But in some ways this was the worst match on the show. The finish saw Anderson throw JFD over the top rope for the DQ and Elegante then chased the heels away. 
It was a nice baby face crown pop for vicious and vicious and elegante have the potential to draw one big house somewhere down the line, provided they wait a long time to get there. The crowd didn't like this match and finish at all because it came off like a ripoff and that elegante never once touched one of the heels. Obviously he's not ready to work on their level, but with Arn and Wyndham, you've got guys who should be able to get one good spot where they could bump for him. There was heat for the match, but it ended leaving everyone feeling let down. Uh, he gave it one star. What do you think of the analysis there? Pretty damned accurate. Uh, when's the last time you thought you, you could think of that? The horseman franchise in a, uh, in a match at the great American bash, uh, had eight minutes of match time. It's almost hard to believe, uh, you could tell the lack of creativity that the finish was a tossing, uh, JYD over the top rope about as boring and flat as Reese Bowden used to say about as flat as a plate full of piss. Uh, I just didn't like it at all. I thought it was a, it was, I thought it was a phone in. They did it. So being in a studio as a guest, they did a phoner. It wasn't good and protect this guy, protect that guy. But here's the thing. I'm not blaming an individual talent. They were, they were cast this way. This is how they were booked. And, and I felt bad for Paul Orndorff and Paul Orndorff wasn't the same. Cause he'd had that nerve deal his problems with his arm, but boy, it was dog and Elegante. Elegante had no more, was no more ready to get in the ring than I was to try to make weight for the Kentucky Derby. Ain't going to happen. So uh, I just, I felt bad. The franchise got the horseman franchise got abused. Uh, they didn't deliver what they normally deliver. And too much saving this guy or saving that guy. They should have beat dog, called it a day. Right. Simple. Should have beat dog, called it a day. But that's not how the call went down. And therefore, it, it, the match ended on a very flat note, which helped no one in the process. Let's talk a little bit about the next match because this is something that um, it's pretty hyped up because Lex Luger is over like Rover. He does an interview beforehand, uh, and it's just typical Lex Luger interview, but there is an interview on the other side. You've got Paulie dangerously working with mean Mark, uh, to do an interview here and just outstanding stuff. You can tell that mean Mark is not totally comfortable with this process yet. Heyman is just going on and on and on to the point that they have to cut him off and get to the ring. But when the match actually gets going, uh, this is a lot better than people expect. I can't believe that I'm actually going to read this, but Meltzer gave a Lex Luger match three stars on pay-per-view. And he would say that, um, Mark looked green in some of his moves, but he's got a ton of potential because of his size and athletic ability. And, uh, actually Luger worked very well, particularly in selling Mark's moves. Still two women in the crowd stole the crowd live from this match. Fans were watching them and the reaction to some of the stuff in the match was nothing special. Uh, I assume that that meant these ladies were, uh, finding a way to distract all the men in the crowd. I missed that. I didn't, I, me and old Bob Caldwell were just keeping our, staying in our lane, bro. So I didn't, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't get to see sometimes, you know, in that era, well, before the, after that attitude era, there were a lot of bosoms on display and around our various time zones in North America, uh, and, and other places, but nonetheless, uh, I don't know what happened there. Unless they just were drinking too much or, or they wanted to 
Secret Show the most uh, teaked. Um, Meltzer would say that Mark showed no signs of his bad hip until the latter stages of the match when he started to limp. He said the finish was excellent. Luger put Mark in the rack. Uh, he's th- build at 319 here. And then Mark's leg hits the ref, dangerously hits Luger with the phone and scoots out. But Luger kicks out of the pin. Um, eventually, he clotheslines Mark and pins him three stars. And your old buddy, Bruce Pritchard, has said that this is the match that he showed Vince McMahon to try to scout Mark Callis. Uh, he had been having conversations with him and uh, told him that Vince was going to see this match. And Mark kind of didn't want Vince to see this one. Cause he knew he was working with a, with a bad hip and Vince admits, or Bruce admits that Vince wasn't really impressed with Mark at the time. Uh, but eventually he comes around acquiesces and just a handful of months after this, there is no me- more mean Mark Callis. It's the undertaker. I can't think of a guy who, uh, has a story quite like that. What do you remember about a young mean Mark here? I loved him, man. Uh, I, I knew we were paying him. I want to say three grand a week. So that was 156,000 a year at that time. And I can guarantee you he's had matches this year. He's made more than that. Uh, but nonetheless, times are changing. Uh, I thought you can't replicate and find six, nine, 300 pound athletes. He was a college basketball player. He could run. He had good feet, a good balance. Uh, he was trained in, you know, a territory, uh, environment there in Dallas. Uh, he got a lot of hands-on instruction from Gary Hart because Gary Hart saw Mark as a, a Don Jardine like spoiler character, the mass spoiler, one of the great mass men of all time. So, uh, he, I, I always thought he was great. So, you know, I talked to, I'm talking to Oli about it. So Oli says, he'll never draw a goddamn dime, JR or Jim Ross or whatever. He should call me asshole, whatever. And, uh, I said, I think you're wrong. Well, and he said, of course, then it goes through his personal. Well, it don't make a shit what you think. I'm the booker. You're the announcer. So you're going to announce what I book. I said, you're right about that. I sure am. But I think you're missing a boat here. He's six, nine, he's 300 pounds. They can use agile. He can be a baby face or he can be a heel. And so his takers contract is coming up. And, uh, I talked to her or whoever's in charge. It's the moving parts. So many moving parts. I said, uh, you know, I talked to Oli about Callaway and he don't like him. I think he's wrong. It was one of those days where it didn't matter. It could have been Luthez, but whatever Oli says is all right with me. He hadn't drawn him. He hadn't done anything for us yet. I said, we haven't used him yet. You don't expect him to be a superhero if he's, if he's, if he's booked to be somebody's sidekick type thing. So then I talked to Mark. I said, you know, this place here is, they don't value. They're not valuing your, your skills. If you have an opportunity to go to WWE, jump on it. They'll figure out what you're going to do, which are too damn big and athletic that they're not going to be impressed. And you got too much, you're too much of a pro in a locker room decorum is explicitly good. So that encouraged me. I'm sure too, just to, you know, I need to be, be serious about this move because we didn't only didn't want to pay him three grand a week. He didn't want to give him a raise and nothing. So it was a mistake. And, but that was, I don't know. It, again, it was, well, I wonder if it was because Oli didn't create him or he, or that he just saw something in that he didn't like, and I don't know what that could have been. Right. 
Well, I like the next match, uh, again, two of the biggest names and tag teams, uh, doom and the rock and roll express. We're about five years removed from the first time the rock and roll had the NWA straps and tonight's not their night. The doom is going to retain in 15 minutes and 14 seconds. It gets two and a quarter stars and, uh, Meltzer thinks that's pretty good considering that Morton was working with a shoulder separation. He says the match was technically a good match, but the crowd live just wasn't into it at all. And, um, he says at this point, fans were ready to see flair and sting and kind of didn't care about anything else. Maybe this is a bad spot on the card to be, but he thought it was pretty decent. Reed Reed is going to get the win pinning uh, Robert Gibson after a shoulder block off the top rope two and a quarter. What say you fair to Midland. It was okay. Uh, I think you're right. The placement of it was challenging. People's attention were on that was, was coming to the next match, not on this one. I don't remember, uh, I might be wrong about this. Somebody will correct me. I'm sure on Twitter at JRS any corrections or, or, uh, words of adulation are always appreciated. Uh, I'm kidding. Well, no, I'm not really kidding. Uh, I don't know that we had a long program. Those guys, Conrad, I don't know. There was, it may have been a quasi cold match. If so. You're not going to get that emotional investment on an issue that hasn't been developed. Your main event is next. It's what everybody remembers most about this show. It's Ric Flair. It's sting. It's box well, office, 16 minutes, five seconds, a cast uh, of thousands. Yeah. Tons of folks are here. Um, all Anderson comes out early and, uh, Doug Dillinger is going to handcuff him to Eligante. Uh, Paul Orndorff's there. The Steiners are there. The junk food Jim Hurt, dog. Jim Hurt, Jim Hurt had an extended cameo. Yeah, he did. And so if you don't know what Hurt looks like or sounds like or his demeanor, there's some, there's some nice footage at the head of the, uh, 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 match with Rick and, 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 and Sting. And you'll see Jim Hurt in action. Meltzer says, uh, the match itself was the typical flair repertoire. It's hard to judge where sting is at. He didn't do any of the moves that would require a heavy landing, something off the top rope or leapfrogs or dives. Uh, he says, actually those moves would be stupid for him to do at this point, but it limits his repertoire since they've been staples for him for the last year. Meltzer would say they announced they're at the 10 minute mark when they are really less than six minutes. So he thought they were in for a short one, uh, lots of intensity, lots of heat. And the crowd is super hot for the final four minutes. I, I kind of agree with that. If you're going to go back and watch it, you can watch the whole match. But if you see the last five, you sort of get the story. The horsemen are going to do the obligatory attempted run in. Uh, and then of course, you know, flair is going to escape the scorpion death lock a few times. And the finish comes just like when flair lost a steamboat, when flair goes for the figure four and sting catches him with the inside cradle and Meltzer would say the pop was very loud and sustained. And one of the more impressive pops I've heard in a long time. He says it's a very good match and the finish was especially exciting, but in some ways people were expecting more three and three quarter stars. Uh, when sting is pinning Rick, we see you in the background, raising your arm as the three count hits. Uh, tell us what's going through your mind here. I mean, it feels like it's been a long time coming. This is the big crowning moment. What were you thinking? Well, yeah, it was a long time coming. I think that was the main thing. Just getting the match in the ring, getting everybody healthy to where they could performed to a higher level. Uh, and hopefully it was going to open up new chapters, not where you supplant Rick, but where Rick's on a different cause. 
he's got a different journey. Now he, they're not all coming to him to wrestle the man. He's got to go to the, to the others and create, uh, new marriages, new stories. I just thought it was going to be a fresh time to maybe give us a little bit of a restart. Uh, so I was optimistic because God, we need to change there at WCW. We need to change in Atlanta to where we had long-term direction. Uh, we, everybody was on the same page uh, and all these issues is these not these non needed issues could just finally get the hell out of here. So, uh, I didn't even see myself do that, but I guess I was, I get kind of lost in it sometimes, you know, and sting had been the underdog and he fought over the injuries. He was a typical baby face deal. And what all of us ask kissing baby face announcers do is to provide the adulation when the baby face finally, finally, for God's sakes, achieves his goal. A lot of people thought that this should have been Lex Luger, that this should have happened, you know, a year or two prior to this. And Luger should have been the guy to finally beat flair after all those attempts. What say you Was sting the right guy or should they have tried Luger? I like sting. I like stings, uh, uh, as a, in that role better. Uh, there, there, there are a lot out there. They have a lot of similarities, uh, Luger and sting, and they're a lot alike, but I think sting has a little bit more athleticism. Uh, it seemed like the pace in wrestling at that time was becoming more up, updated, more, a little faster, a different gait you know, a different, different, uh, uh, different speed. That was not Luger's game. And I think sting could, that was stings more his game. He was more agile. You know, he was a great athlete could run and jump and he's just a terrific spring in his legs. I just thought he would be better for it. better with him. It's just that we, we missed the timing. The timing of that whole show was, was tentative. We, 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 because there's patella injury. Like you said, Conrad, and you're right on the money from clash, Dusty Rhodes knew from clash one that sting was going to be the guy. Right. And so then there'll be some in the locker room because you have a, uh, an active talent, uh, still pretty active as, as the booker, there's automatically tension. Anytime active participants are in the creative process, it has to be taken into consideration. Because it is an issue. It doesn't have to be a major issue, but it can't be ignored. It's some level of issue, depending on the individuals involved. And so, you know, uh, that would have been positioned as Dusty just wants to get rid of Rick. One of the reasons that that's stupid is that we, that we had in Ric Flair more often than not the most refined most ardent and skilled heel in the business. And yes, folks, I know he wasn't always a heel. I know that sometimes people loved him, even though he was a heel, but I'm just telling you as a villain and checking that box, nobody was better. And one of the reasons that WWE right now and anybody else that's in the wrestling business is not getting their champions over their babyface champions over is because they don't have great adversaries. Boy, it's, it's a, it's a, it's not no acapella thing out there, man. So, uh, but that was the deal there. Uh, Sting was going to be a, the young champion. Dusty saw it. Everybody saw it, but it wasn't a way to eliminate Rick. And I think that's kind of what Rick felt that they're just going to push him to the side, get the young guy in here and go from there. And God, I can understand that. I've, I've been in the same spot. 
it's worth mentioning that Meltzer would say, unlike any of the title changes over the last nine years or so, this doesn't figure to be a short-term change. While there doesn't appear to be any plans right now, I wouldn't be surprised to see Flair win it back somewhere down the line. But if it were to happen, it would be more of a short-term thing. There's a new King and Flair's reign as the number one man on the promotion is over. Unfortunately for sting, he's following in the footsteps of someone that many feel is the greatest all around performer in history. Right now, that may not be a factor because pretty much everyone seems to realize the title change was something that needed to be done. I guess we should mention that sting sort of echoed that sentiment right after he wins the belt, he makes his way down the ramp and there's a big fireworks display. That's got stings face on it. Meltzer would say the WWF set quite a standard after his title change at WrestleMania. And I'm not saying this topped it, but it was comparable. And after the fireworks were done, Sting made a speech where he really put Flair over in a huge way, which actually got some booze because it was out of character. It came off as a good move to the Flair fans, and there are many. And uh yeah, it is sort of unusual to see a babyface say, you know, I'm following the greatest world champion there ever was. Yeah. And all I can say is I'm gonna do my best. Yeah, good luck with that cha- that challenge because it's not easy. And it and it and it didn't happen. Sting did not fulfill and replace Rick. He, he said he stepped in for him, but again, creative issues and not having the continuity, you know, somewhere along the way, uh, these, these wrestling people are going to understand that you cannot abuse a baby face and expect to get them over. They have to have, they have to be cared for, uh, and they're hard, they're harder to maintain and build than a heel much easier for a heel to get over, but it seems like, uh, that's not happening much either, but the baby face thing is so simple. You got people got to believe in that you always overcome somehow that son of a bitch does it every time. I don't know how he does it, but he just won't quit and he wins. He he pulls it out. It's amazing. And that's why I like it. And that, that's just human nature. People can get that. That's a, that's not baby face for sure. That's not old school. I get, I get pissed off Conrad. I get some Twitter people asking sometimes that, you know, do you think you're too old school? And I, I may be in some areas. I sure might be. I'm certainly not infallible, but I can tell you this, the, the greatest booking in wrestling now today and tomorrow is going to be based on personal issues and the personal issues are going to be, uh, involving people that we care about and that, and we can define who is this person. He or she is blank, blank and blank. Who's the, who's the antagonist and who's the protagonist. Let me ask you, you know, that Meltzer wound up being incorrect. This was not long-term, uh, Flair wins the belt back like six months later. Right. Uh, and then we know a year from now, Flair's out of here. It feels like six months later, WCW says, uh, maybe we got a little buyer's remorse. Let's go back to what worked before. Let's put it on Flair. And that only lasts about six months before they're ready to try something new. They've, they've grown tired of Flair's act by that. Uh, is what part of that is just the wrestling business being cyclical because things are down on the other station as well. What part of that is fans just aren't into sting as champion. And what part of that is Jim Hurd just don't know what the fuck he's doing. I think the latter probably is probably more accurate than, uh, anything I could describe. You got to have great leadership and great leadership. Again, it's going to sound like a goddamn broken record folks. I'm sorry. You got to have product knowledge. You got to have product knowledge. You got to understand, uh, and foresee and predict and forecast certain things that are going to happen that are basically inevitable. And uh, cause like I can tell you, like I said, 
you, you get involved in any level of 50, 50 booking. I can tell you the inevitability is this. Nobody's going to get over. And if great baby faces don't have equally as great a heels to work with, then the, the, the baby faces can't get over to the, the upper echelon to the top of the mountain. Don't work that way. So, uh, and most territories don't want to build around a heel champion. They want that great shining night baby face champ. And they want then him to have a pack of wolves chasing him and the nice stories told and here they come. So you've got a never ending supply of, of realistic adversaries for your champion. It's a whole process. And one of the reasons sting did not have the run he needed was who was he going to work with? That was over and hot as a baby, as a heel, right? We didn't have nobody, nobody. So he wasn't treated fairly in that deal either. And again, it just wasn't. It wasn't his fault, but that's what it was, man. It just, he didn't have any dancing partners. Let me ask that. Go ahead. Uh, and, and that's unfortunate because he'd waited so long, the rehabs, the, the you know, the politics, the, the miss, the miss, the innuendo and the miss being misled, you know, it just, he didn't deserve that. He deserved a longer opportunity to, to see if it was going to get over, but the buffer management wasn't smart enough to identify. Hey, our problem's not our champion. Our problem is we don't have the opponents that people want to see our champion fight. That's simple, but nobody wanted to go there because that would, in, that would indicate there was a booking, uh, a, a malady and there was, but it's easier just to name hit one guy, the young guy that didn't know how to be the champion yet. I say bullshit to that one. Let's talk a little bit about the, uh, the card overall as a whole scale of one to 10. Where would you rank great American bash 1990? Probably a six, maybe a seven. Uh, I, the, I, I was also expecting more in the, uh, I was, I was torn in that Rick uh, sting match. I really didn't want to see Rick lose, but I knew it was the right thing to do at that point in time. Uh, I love the, the, the midnight express, uh, Southern boys match was a game changer saver for me. I like the squash match with the Vader and the impression he made, uh, but about a, about a six, I, you know, it was, it was star studded, man. There's a lot of hall of fame guys on that card. You notice there's no women, uh, but you had some of the more prominent names to, and, and we talk, we find a card that's got more great tag teams on it and on paper, midnight, rock and roll horseman doom. Freebird or Steiners pretty impressive, but I, again, the stories leading into those matches, Conrad were not well told. They were not good backstories. People had not made emotional investments on that match in front of their front of them. There have been no story told to get me invested. So therefore that's what it was. It was just, just a six. Yeah. Well, it was a, it was a six. What's your favorite match on the card? Uh, midnight. Yeah. Southern boys. Yeah. Yeah. The tag man, 18 minutes of, of, uh, of great tag team wrestling strategies, uh, fundamentals still hold up today without a doubt. They took advantage of their surroundings and they had, a, it was a team win. Uh, and, but it was a, a match that could have gone realistically gone either way. The false finishes were, were, uh, uh, frequent and the, the baby face guys, uh, Tracy, and Scott got, uh, got the well, Scott, right? Yeah. yeah. Scott, Scott Armstrong, of course. 
that they got plenty of opportunities to win. Uh, I think this is Steve actually, isn't it? Steve. Yeah, it was Steve. Yeah. Scotty's the one that does the grill position at WWE. Now this Steve was a kind of, was big, a big kid. And, uh, he, he was like Brian. They're both they got the size of that group. You know, I had a debate. I was watching this with uh, my wrestling buddy. And I think a lot of people listening to this have a wrestling buddy, their, their go-to guy. They grew up watching wrestling with and. Mine is a guy that uh, Bruce calls and Glenn from Hershey. And so we're watching this. He wanted me to rate the Armstrongs because he, he argued that, um, that Steve was the worst Armstrong. And I thought that was the most ridiculous thing. I think Steve is maybe one of the most underrated, but I think most people say that Brad is the most underrated. What's your pecking order? Where does Steve fall as far as his in ring bell to bell ability? Hell, I never thought he was any, any, uh, had any deficiency in that regard. Uh, you watch this match, folks. You, you tell me how good he is. Thank you. This is great. Go out of your way. If Jr. Yeah. loves it, and I do too. You know, two fat boys can't be wrong. Go check it out. Hell no, man. We know what we're talking about, and we also talk about barbecue and all kinds of interesting things. Uh, but no, he's a good hand. He's really good, and that's not being a cliche. He he really is. And uh, and Tracy Smothers, I mean, bullshit, man. He can go. He had, he had, he he can snap off those some of that martial arts stuff. That would, that, that would make you open your eyes. It was really, really impressive. So, and again, general Cornette puts the whole damn thing together. And then the end result is four guys in the match that are unselfish that want to have realistic pro wrestling matches where things are logical and make sense to some degree as best this crazy wacky profession can offer. And they did it. And that was, uh, it was awesome. So that was my favorite match. And I. Because again, I thought we should have had a better match with Sting and Rick. And one thing I thought hurt that really much was all that bullshit at the beginning. Uh, Ole getting handcuffed, Elegante. You know, we got to hurry, and make it get Elegante over. Well, well, good luck. I'll see you in five years. Yeah, you, you got to do it this week. You know, we got that big South Carolina tour coming up. Yeah, right. Hey, let so, me ask. You know, when we're talking about um, Sting and the Ultimate Warrior here, you know, we made the comparison earlier and. We talked about how the ultimate warrior had his big crowning moment in April. Here we are in July at Sting's turn. How ironic is it that they're both neon? They both have face paint. They both become world champions, you know, within spitting distance of each other. If you look at when Sting was supposed to win it the first time and they broke in together uh, roughly five years prior to this, mm-hmm. uh, man, there's not a story like that anywhere else in wrestling. Is there? I don't think so. I was, uh, they broke in. Rick Bassman sent them to Memphis with Jerry Jarrett and Jerry Lawler. They didn't last long there. And then uh, we got them in mid South and the idea or UWF, the idea was that cowboy was going to create his own version of the road warriors. So he named them the blade runners, uh, and, uh, sting and rock or something. I don't remember what his name was, uh, but Helwig was not a good fit in the locker room. Uh, were very moody and, 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 uh, it just wasn't a positive person to be around that much. On the other hand, uh, Steve Borden was a, was a prince worked hard, enjoyed being around the guys, very social and a wonderful personality. Couldn't say that for his partner. So when, when warrior, uh, when warrior left to go to Dallas, became the dingo warrior again, with Gary Hart's influence, uh, sting decided to stay with us. And then he was the, 
he was a shining light in that in, the, in this in that acquisition of Crockett Crockett bought the EWF as we mentioned earlier. But it is a little bit uh, it is a little bit ironic. But uh, I, I really liked our guy the best. Uh, our our guy being Sting, and I'm, I'm, I'm I am biased, to be honest. But I think look at all the traits you look for in a leader in a locker room, and uh, you know uh, you know he was very uh, Iron Man like for most of his career. But uh, he he was just a special talent. Still a special guy too. He's, does I think he lives in Dickie Murdoch's old advertised hometown of Waxahachie, somewhere in that neighborhood. So he's I see him at these shows every now and then. Still looks great. And uh, his son had a nice football career at Kentucky. Played in the SEC. He's tied in. So he's uh, he's got he's living a good life. I'm happy for him. Let's, uh, let's tell everybody what we're going to be doing next week. We're going to talk about vengeance 2004. We've spent a lot of time talking about the good old days here. We're going to go back 15 years when we revisit vengeance 2004 and we're doing it on the exact anniversary. The main event of that show is Chris Benoit and triple H for the world heavyweight title underneath it's Victoria and Molly Holly edge and Randy Orton for the intercontinental title, a no DQ match with Matt Hardy and Kane. And how about this for a match that you never thought you'd see? La Resistance are going to defend their tag team titles against Eugene and Ric Flair. Uh, Batista <laughs> is going to be in there with Chris Jericho. And we've got another tag match. How's this for uh, Odd Company? Rhino and Tajiri taking on Garrison Cade and Jonathan Coachman. A lot to talk about here. That's what we're doing next week on Grill and JR. We've got a full slate of shows coming your way, including Great American Bash 1989 and so much more later this month. We appreciate your support and follow us on social media. You can find us on Twitter at JR grilling. Of course he is at JR's BBQ. I am at, Hey, Hey, it's Conrad. And we are out of time. We'll see you next week right here. When we learn more about Jim's hard ons and old wrestling <laughs> on grilling JR. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round together. It's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra five to ten. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B L E A V on YouTube or wherever you listen.